Hello. Hello. Whoa. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Hmm. Can you hear me? This I can hear you, but you sound very robotic. I wonder why that is. Hang on. Okay. You sound good to me. Are you on Wi-Fi? I was running a time machine uh, backup. I've just turned that off. Whoa, whoa. There we go. <clears throat> can you hear me? Uh, yeah, you're the same. Oh, okay. I said, like, good is the same or not the same? <laughs> <laughs> is it is it a good thing or not a good thing? It's it's like a, it's like a comfortable pair of old shoes, Ben. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> um, that was weird. I was I, I plugged my headphones into my um, Rode Podcaster like I normally do, and uh, it gave me like a shock to my eardrums. Whoa! Yeah. Well, it was like it sounded like. Um, and so it was just like that, by the way. And, uh, so then I just plugged it into my computer, but it was weird. Same setup as always. Um, but it wasn't, uh, wasn't too happy. And, and it's weird today because normally I can hear myself talking in the, uh, like, like in the monitor, but now I can't hear that. So whatever. Huh. But you, but, but you can, don't you hear, you hear yourself in your headphones, right? Well, yeah, but they're like muffled because they're the really good ones so it's so it's kind of like it sounds like i have a cold so so your normal situation is you hear yourself from your monitor yeah well from my like front through my headphones like with the little volume connector on my podcaster Mm -hmm. so now i i (laughs) i can hear myself in my head but i can't really tell whether i'm yelling or not (laughs) There's a volume knob. Not on my voice. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, inside voices, Ben. We use right. inside voices. So, so do let me know if I'm if it appears that I'm yelling at all. If I, <laughs> more, if I get too excited. more than more than usual. Okay. Yeah, any more than usual. Um, yeah. So, hey, how are you? Hey, I'm good. I'm. Uh, I'm a little um, weird because I'm I'm jet lagged, but but I'm, I'm jet lagged in the appropriate direction. So um, <laughs> it's uh, it's only a little after, a little before 1 p.m. New Jersey time, but my body is still in Paris, um, so it's a little before 7 uh, p.m. Paris time. Um, but but I but I am I am drinking um, New Jersey time zone appropriate beverages. <laughs> Fantastic. As a, as opposed to Paris time zone beverages. Oh well, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but but it's appropriate. It's appropriate. That's the most important thing. Ah, oh, Don, Don, Don. Um, I have uh, my as I was texting you a couple minutes ago. My my schedule is a little out of kilter. I was supposed to meet somebody for lunch, and he he was a no show. Hmm. So I yeah. So I. I Went through and did some stuff for our show, and did some some other things, and and uh, got back to my office. Had to go to the restroom uh, on my way back, and uh, and and now I'm here. So I, I have. I mean, there's so much. There's so much to talk about, Don. I have follow up for us. Um, I I, I want to. There's one. The, I, let's get to follow up because then I I have something I want to talk about. All right, let's do it. <clears throat> um. So, 
Uh, we, we've got a couple of pieces of follow-up. Oh, no, no, wait. Before we get into follow-up, we can't jump right in like, like we normally do. Or um, So have you – I believe I know the answer to this, but you have updated your operating system of your phone and iPads to iOS 7? Yes, I have. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's, it's, it's beautiful, and now my phone looks old, Ben. <laughs> I, think, I think I got a need to get a new phone. Does your phone look old because it's not in color? Like, no. It's not colored? <clears throat> it looks old because it's not gold and sparkly. Uh, <laughs> Although I don't think I'm going to get the, the, the gold one. I think I'm going to get, uh, I think I'm gonna get the, um, uh, the slate, slate one. But, I, I, yeah, I, uh, I'm just that guy now. So I've embraced okay. that, my that guyness. Well, that's okay. Um, I, I like, I embrace you being that guy as well. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's weird though, because my phone is like a weird mix because I ha- obviously some apps are updated for iOS seven, some are not. Um, so right now my phone is kind of a mishmash. I have found, I've generally found, I was expecting maybe a little bit more disorientation with iOS seven, but for the most part, it seems very straightforward. It's very uh, cool looking, um, and so I'm looking forward to using it more. I was like, as I mentioned, I was out of the country this past week, and so, or you know, the previous week, and so the, that's when iOS seven came out, and that's when all of the tech podcasts I listened to were talking about it. So I've been listening to people talk about it for several days now. But uh, but it's uh, yesterday when we got home, uh, one of the first things I did when I once I had a block of uninterrupted time was to go ahead and download the um, um, the operating system update, and it went very, very smoothly, and it's, the transition has been, been quite smooth. Awesome. The, um, I did uh, – yesterday was the day that I updated mine as well, and I love it. Um, the biggest thing that I played with for a couple hours yesterday was uh, iTunes Radio, and mm. – it was. I, I'm. I'm impressed, and I, we had talked about this before that both you and I have um, uh, iTunes Match, and now with iTunes Match, the twenty five dollars we spend a year, it's free to get the radio, no ads, and all that good stuff. Um, and uh, it was cool. I, I created some some playlists, um, a Beach Boys playlist, hmm. uh, or not beach playlist, a, a Beach Boys radio station. For whatever reason, I'm still into them. Actually, there's more to the Beach Boys uh, as a piece of follow up from from our last discussion when I talked about Pet Sounds. I watched like a phenomenal um, documentary on Brian Wilson hmm. uh, last week. It was on Showtime, and it's called. Mm, Brian Wilson's Smile, maybe, and it's mm-hmm. about this um, this album that he started to make in the 60s and finished it in 2004, and mm-hmm. it sort of goes through the whole thing. It was awesome. Anyway, so I've been listening to more Beach Boys, which is weird. It's a weird phase I'm going through. Yeah, that does, that does sound very weird. But but anyway, I mean, the Beach Boys are good, so that's and it's yeah. good. It's always good to check out new music, even if it's uh, old old new music, you know, new to me music. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that's that's been the big thing. Uh, uh, non-food safety-wise, I've, I've been I've been impressed in the last day or so about uh, iOS seven. So so yeah, okay. Um, uh, I also went to Florida. Did you? Uh, I did. Yeah. So uh, went and surprised our children and took them to Disney and to uh, to the beach. I was at a uh, 
uh, conference that our friend Michelle Daniluk was uh, was planning on being at, but she had um, something come up in her in her personal life uh, that uh, uh, took her away from the um, from the conference. But it was the international. Uh, beverage and citrus conference in Clearwater Beach. So I gave a talk. The whole family drove down with me. Uh, we went to Disney, and it was a really good time. So, but now I'm back in Raleigh for a day, and then I'm off to Chicago. Wow! Look at you, busy traveler, jet setting. Jet, that's really uh, it's what you've inspired me to do. <laughs> I that's that's good to know. I'm looking forward to. So I, I've been out of town uh the past the past week but i'm looking forward to being in town this week and then uh next week uh fly off to beautiful uh downtown des moines uh actually it's not downtown des moines it's the outskirts of des moines for iafp uh, program committee meeting next week but i'm looking forward to being in the office uh this week and just kind of getting caught up on stuff and just enjoying the beautiful fall weather here in new jersey um, really, you're going to Des Moines for the scallops, right? That's right. That's they're known for their scallops, as yep. as I think that was recorded on a famous podcast. Yep, known for their scallops in, in Des Moines. Well, good. Um, so follow up. There's a couple things. One, I wanted to. I, I, I got in a little bit of a in a in a in a tizzy in a in a jam. I don't know what the what the right word is for it, but um, we talked in the last podcast. Uh, a little bit about cooking food in a dishwasher. <laughs> we did, didn't we? Did that came up, didn't it? It did. Uh, and then, then I did an interview right around the same time with mm. uh, with a guy, uh, a freelancer who works for the Food Safety News. And and I don't know if it was a little bit of me and a little bit of him, or a lot of me and a lot or a lot of him. But it just came out really bad. It came out super super bad. And and so uh, we'll link to this uh, to this article, and and what gets linked to is actually an updated version of the article, and the updated version is still not so good. But uh, what well, you know, you and I talked last podcast about um, not really knowing the temperature of a dishwasher and how the temperature of a plate in a dishwasher may not correspond to the food in the dishwasher. And I've got a graduate student who's using these data loggers to do some measurements and, and found, you know, some, some kind of cool stuff. Like, I mean, um, basically that the food will get hot, um, depending on what kind of container that it's in, he's seeing. And, um, shot you a, a text earlier this week about, uh, appendix a, uh, from, uh, FSIS to try and figure out, uh, pathogens in, in meat and poultry. And anyway, this, this interview that I did, um, made me, made me sound like, uh, I think a crazy person. When or, came- or at least, at least that you didn't know anything about food safety. And I'm I'm pretty sure from other conversations I've had with you, you kind of know stuff about food safety. So when I read the article, I was like, huh, that's a weird thing for Ben to say. <laughs> it's – yeah, um, I – I'm not sure I said some of the things. And, in fact, I, the updated version um, sort of clarifies something. But I guess this is why, you know, this is why we do the podcast. And this is one of the things that, um, that that's a, a common theme as we go back almost 50 episodes where, you know, and this is your world that I'm happy you brought me into on calculations and, and, and risk um, – estimations and the one of the passages had to do with um you know if everything in your dishwasher got to 167 degrees then that that should be fine 
um, from a safety standpoint. You know, I'm paraphrasing it a little bit, but that's that's kind of what um, what I was quoted as saying. And in fact, I didn't say that. I, what I what I did was I gave um, the journalist a list of. Uh, of, of specific temperatures, 145 degrees for muscle meat beef and 145 degrees for pork and 165 for poultry, uh, ground or whole and, um, you know, ground pork at a 155 for 15 seconds, like, like very specific stuff. And, and he kind of translated that into, well, if everything got to at least 167, then we would be, everything would be cool. Right. Because 167 is more than all those other numbers that you told me. And while that's true, it doesn't make it more safe, right? Right. <laughs> and that, that was the part that, that I don't think I did a really good job explaining that to him in, in the first place. And it kind, of, it kind of surprised me a little bit. Um, I, I, didn't, I, I don't typically clarify that kind of stuff. And I, and I guess I kind of reflected a little more after I read what, what was uh, published. And I was like, man, maybe I need to clarify that. Maybe, maybe a discussion I've got to have with a journalist is it's not going to go into the, to the article, but for them to understand that, that these numbers are based on, you know, specific calculations of, uh, you know, log reductions and, and more isn't going to make it any, um, you know, necessarily any, any safer, any better. So, so that was one thing. And then, I mean, there's this whole, what, what, what I think he took away from it, um, was this focus on botulinum where it was, I mean, a, a 20 second or 30 second discussion in a 25 minute interview. Um, and so anyway, I tried to clarify a little bit on that on, um, in, in, in a, uh, you know, re- response to, to them, but it was, it was just a mess of numbers, I guess. And it, and it, I guess showed me that if, if he's, you know, brand new to food safety, he's freelancing, he's looking for stuff to learn about. He's no, probably no different than, than someone who's, who's reading it, um, and may get all these things confused. So, so how do we explain this stuff in a, in a clear way? Um, and make me not look as much like an idiot as I did. So, <laughs> ah, Don. So yeah. So what, what what are your thoughts on this this whole thing? Well, you know, I I once had a conversation with somebody who said, "Well, I talked to the news media once and they misquoted me, so I'll never do that again." And right. it's kind of like, you know, you cannot win if you do not play, right? So you have to play the game. You have to be willing to be misquoted. You have to be willing to be misunderstood if you want to try to get the word out about whatever it is that you want to communicate to the news media. So um, you just, you know, you do the best that you can. You try to be as clear as possible. I always try to get a read on the person. Like, are they just looking for a quote? In which case, I'll try to give them a amusing or to the point, quote, and wrap the interview up. Are they really interested in learning? Um, in which case I'll expound a little bit more and I'll be willing to get into a little bit more complexity. But, you know, you never, you never know. You just never know. So, you know, you just got to do your best and, and hopefully it turns out okay. Yeah, it's one of those things that I'm definitely not going to shy away from it, but it made me think a little more about how I'll, uh, I'll um I don't know. Maybe I wasn't paying enough attention. Maybe that was the thing that I just I, I just didn't do a, a good enough job um, getting my my messages into into short little blurbs and making sure that that I was being clear with the signs. So I, I don't I don't place um, 
a whole lot of blame on on the the journalist. I think the editor probably could have caught some of the stuff, um, being that it was for food safety news, and and that crew usually does a pretty good job, um, especially on their feature articles. So, uh, but but I mean, it was, um, yeah, it was a bit of a mess, but but oh well. No big deal. We'll get we'll get past it. And I was, I, I this all happened right before we left for Florida, and with had the family with me, mm-hmm. so I didn't writing anything on it. But I'm going to write something on it this week, uh, just to sort of kind of get, get a a more succinct message out there. And that message is, hey, it may actually work. It may not work. There's not a lot of data. Right. And if you if you really care about it and you want to invest in a an expensive thermometer that costs, you know, a fraction, a reasonable fraction of the price of your dishwasher so you can do this practice on a regular basis and always do that whenever you cook anything in the dishwasher, hey, have at it. But otherwise, I think the recommendation to normal folks is you can't trust it. I mean, and then even if you even if you had a friend who had Model X dishwasher and the friend had validated all these recipes in that dishwasher, you know, I think that the setting on the hot water heater in your house that determines the baseline temperature as the, as the, as the water goes into the, refer- into the, the dishwasher is going to have an impact, right? So there's so many moving pieces with this, most of which you don't know or don't have control over or both. Absolutely. And, um, and, and the tools that are available for, to you are not things that are built to give you the data that you need. Like, you know, we right. talked a little bit about this in the last podcast. You can get these test strips that, that'll uh, change color when it hits 160 or 180, but you stick that to either the side of the dishwasher or something that's going to conduct heat a lot better than um, food that's sitting in a in a a bag or a mason jar. So it's, it's fun. I, I mean, I feel like we spent a lot of time on it and maybe it all goes away. Um, but it's, it, it's kind of fun to, to jump into this one uh, a little bit, even though um, I didn't do a real good job explaining it to somebody or, or I, or I did and it just didn't get picked up very well. Right. So that's my first little bit of follow up, And then we, we've got another um, message that we, um, that we got, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, with a bit of a uh, some follow up on um, reduced sugar jellies, and so um, do you want to you want to yeah. go ahead? And on? Yeah. So this was listener feedback provided um, by the website via the website, <clears throat> and so um, the uh, the listener says you can read my message but not my name. Um, so I have deliberately uh, left his name out of the uh, file. <clears throat> He does provide some identifying information, but I will do my best to anonymize him. Um, person writes, um, I found your podcast, thanks to a mention on the Barf blog. Uh, I don't do the Apple thing, so no iTunes subscription for me. He says he's subscribed with the podcast app for Android. Um, I, I guess I'm going to allow him to continue to listen. <laughs> I was on the fence on this, but no. And, and I mean, obviously, you, know, you, you and I are firmly uh, entrenched in the Apple camp, and we poke fun. At those that use other other applications, but hey, you know, honestly, I guess I guess um, you know, as long as he listens, it's okay. He, he doesn't even spell iTunes right, but <laughs> because he, he calls it iTunes and he spells it with a capital I. But anyway, I digress. Um, so he works for a uh, Department of Health in one of the states, and he um, supports local restaurant inspectors with technical assistance and training. To me, this sounds like, I mean, you know. 
as much as we poke fun at this person, um, this is this is somebody doing a great job, right? So this is somebody that has some technical expertise. They're the, the tech backup for restaurant inspectors. So um, just fantastic, uh, good good job to have, and good good that those people are out there um, providing that technical backup. So in Food Safety Talk 44, um, the listener writes that you talk, writes into us that we talked about a research project looking at safety of using less sugar and making jellies. And uh, I, I want to provide a little bit of an update on that. Uh, my graduate student, Jen, um, who coincidentally uh, came to the uh, predictive modeling meeting with me in, in France and has now successfully defended her master's. She did a little bit of work on this project before leaving to go on to her her new job, uh, which is working in a uh, tuberculosis research lab at the Cornell Medical Center. But she's a, been a phenomenally productive graduate student, and she was no less phenomenally productive with this. She got um, dozens of uh, sugar sample, uh, do- dozens of uh, jam and jelly samples tested. Um, with pH and water activity, she went to the store. She bought some products. She tested that as well. I'm going to try to figure out how to wrap this up and write this into a story um, like that would be appropriate for, let's say, publishing in Food Protection Trends or something like that. I mean, the good information, the, the good the good news, at least for the from the point of view of the um, <clears throat> entrepreneur who is going to be making these products is that what – uh, what we discovered is that these products do have um, quite uh, low water activity. The pH is, is variable, but again, well below um, 4.6, which is the, the, the point of concern for bot. Uh, water activities are quite <clears throat> are quite variable, um, but the range of water activities is within the range of water activities for commercially prepared product that, that my student went to the store and bought and then tested. The commercially prepared products are more tightly controlled in terms of pH, but again, they're all from the same uh, manufacturer, so you would expect that. Some of the entrepreneurs... <clears throat> pH values are higher, but again, well uh, above, well below the uh, the four six uh, danger zone. So, so that project is coming along quite nicely. But again, uh, back to the listener feedback, the the. Um uh, the public health person writes, it's great to hear um, as I have to defend our agency's stance on only allowing jellies made with sugar under our state's cottage food law. I've attached a copy of the guidelines below. He says... <clears throat> Uh, I've even been accused that the health department has labeled Splenda as a toxic substance. I was able to explain to the person that's not the case and that the food safety relationship of water activity with sugar was very well understood with sugar substitutes, not so much. And then they provided the cottage food uh, guidelines for their particular state. Um, And the person goes on to add, anyway, great to hear that someone's actually going to look at the issue and for some validation of those of us with a regulatory side of the fence that that we're on the right track. So um, again, I, I guess good news for the entrepreneur in that what she's making seems to be safe. I'm not so sure we have good news in terms of like, do we have any more clarification of the big picture in terms of what, what can we tell people in terms of the safety of these products? I mean, I'm going to try to look at the recipes, the baseline recipes, the modified recipes, try to get an estimate of the amount of added sugar. For now, it looks like with the recipes we've tested, the added sugar, the, the reduced sugar ones don't appear to be significantly less in terms of risk, but, but again, it's still a little bit, you know, it, it's just, it's, it, the data are just variable. I mean, I guess that's sort of the bottom line. One, um, I, I remember having a discussion with, uh, Elizabeth Andrus a little bit about this right back when I was like cutting my teeth on jellies when I started here at NC state. 
um, and jams. And, and she said that from a safety standpoint, I, you know, I, I have to go back and look at our email. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't remember exactly what, what the thoughts were there, but the, what stuck with me was um, how the, uh, the sugar changes the boiling point and may change, or at least the, um, it, it changes the heating conduction or, or something within a process, um, which may lead to greater mold and yeasts, uh, or, you know, any of the vegetative cells that, that might, um, stick around, um, through the, through the canning process. So she, that was her, like, I, I remember her recommend, not recommendation, but her, our conversation was more about, yeah, um, uh, it, it, it's both a safety and a quality issue, or could be, um, essentially. Right, and I, I would say probably more, <clears throat> more a quality issue. So I think the the point that um, that Elizabeth was probably making is, so if you add sugar to anything that you're going to boil, that raises the boiling point. So in other words, if things would normally boil at 212 Fahrenheit, they'll now boil at 214 or 215 or even higher, depending on the amount of sugar that you add. So that improves the process or that, that increases the, the, the temperature of the process. But then you also, we also know that lower water activities have a protective effect in terms of protecting organisms from inactivation. So salmonella is less readily inactivated under low water activity environments. Now, again, I don't know whether we're in that zone where that's beginning to have an effect or not. So, Maybe, but but then on the other hand, um, the if you raise the boiling point, you're also got more sugar, so you're going to have a lower water activity to suppress growth. So, I mean, again, there's just too many in my in my mind. There's just too many moving pieces to try to be able to offer an uh, a reasonable estimate estimate of whether you're net improving or net reducing the safety. I, I, my my gut feeling from looking at the data is that you're still so far away from areas where you might have a concern that you don't need to worry about it. Now, where you m- would need to worry, especially for some of these these products that are formulated to have lower sugar, is because the water activities are higher, they might not inhibit – well, certainly they won't inhibit some molds and yeast. They might not inhibit staphylococcus, and so – Granted, staff is probably going to be destroyed by the cooking process. Even, even even if you you don't have that raised boiling point, you're still going to probably kill the staff that you need to kill many times over. But I would worry that those products, if they're not properly refrigerated after they're open, and and if they were to become recontaminated, that they might represent a risk. So, but I'm still. Uh, having collected more data, and then also we have to look at, um, for example, we can look at the watermelon jelly pH and water activity. We can look at the the cronut bacon maple jam pH and water activity, and those are so far outside, so far away from the envelope of products that this person is manufacturing. So we so we we kind of know okay, watermelon jelly, cronut maple. Jam, those are risky products, right? And let's look at where they fall in this pH and water activity um, plot and then look at where uh, this manufacturer is, is operating and, and it's, just, it's just miles away on this plot. So, um, so th- from that standpoint, she's very far away from things that we know are risky. Now, how far, is, how far away she is from things that might be risky, again, we don't know, but I, I've got to do some more data analysis. But the main thing is um, we're making progress and we're collecting 
collecting data, just just like with the situation with the the dishwasher cooking, right? I mean, we ha- before we had zero data, and now we, thanks to you and your students, we have more data, and so we're 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 learning what we need to do. Uh, yeah, and and that's how we can make better decisions, you know. So no one's exactly. doing, yeah. It's not done in a vacuum. It's not like uh, you come up with a, a temperature of uh, 167 because it's more than 165. <laughs> right, right. This, these go to 11. <laughs> these go to 11. Um, so real nice segue into the third piece of follow-up that I had, which was really about this make a, make maple bacon jam um, that I, I wanted to just hit on because we, we talked about this outbreak in the last episode, uh, but Toronto Public Health uh, released their findings of their investigation after um, that last episode recorded. And and really just a quick update was the jam itself wasn't refrigerated at um, the source or at the service uh, spot. So either, neither uh, La Dolce or Epic Burger refrigerated it. So just like you know, exactly what you're saying on Staph Aureus, who knows where contamination happened. Um, they had, didn't re- release whether they were able to pull um, the a- anything specific from the source, but they believe that it was uh, contaminated at La Dolce, not refrigerated, and in two different spots. Um, and uh, that's what led to to the illnesses. But but you've got a, a product exactly like what you just said. This you know point nine seven. Uh, water activity pH of like five point six or five point eight um, and, and two two food businesses not sort of recognizing that this is something that um, if we 're not going to process it or heat treat it and uh, then then we better refrigerate it um, so yeah kind of i mean I, I think a really interesting um, outbreak to to keep following. Um, because it's got so many like nice moving parts of sanitation and service and and you know lots of lots of cool stuff. Very good, very good. And I I have one more piece of follow up um, that's not <clears throat> that's not in the notes that I do want to share. So I think we've talked in the past some about uh, food allergy and and that isn't a topic that neither of you are neither of us are really an expert on, but that we we care about and and we do talk about from time to time. And I think I may have mentioned that in the past I have uh, sponsored. Um, um, somebody that I that I follow in in social media, I've sponsored um, her on the the food allergy walk in Philadelphia, and that person is uh, Amy Jane Gruber. Who, if you're not following her on on Twitter, you're missing out because she's hilarious there. Uh, she's also the the wife of the famous um, Apple blogger John Gruber. But I had the opportunity to. Once again, this year sponsored them for the the allergy walk, and when I did, uh, she sent a very nice uh, thank you back, and I sent a response back to her saying, "Hey, look, um, I do a food safety podcast, and um, um, I, I've heard her as guest on other podcasts, and actually, she has uh, her own podcast now uh, with uh, Paul Kafasis um, from uh, I think from uh, Rogue Amoeba, the the audio recording uh, software company, a hilarious podcast called uh, Just the Tip." Um, which is about basically nothing at all. And I, I said, Hey, would you, would you be willing to come on our, our food safety, 
uh, podcast and talk about life with the food, you know, with life with food allergies. So she's, she's food allergic. Her son is also food allergic. And she said, well, I don't know. I'm not really an expert. Um, but let me listen to your podcast and I'll let you know whether I, I would feel comfortable doing that. But she's, she did, she said something that was very strange. Like she says, I, I, I get nervous. Podcasting is hard. <laughs> and it's like, but she seems so relaxed and, and natural when I've heard her on other podcasts. But anyway, so, so she at least expressed an interest in, in checking out our podcast and hopefully she'll be a guest someday. But uh, I think it just would be great to have her. She really has a very, again, it's, it's somebody kind of like I would say from the mar, the, the mold of somebody like uh, Barb Kowalczyk, who is in the, the, the business that they're in because of a personal tragedy related to food safety. Um, and I mean, Barb has some scientific background and training, but, but who's really, I mean, somebody who, who has, who, who lives with these issues on a daily basis or whose lives has been affected by these issues, um, I think can just be, can add so much to the discussion. And so I really hope that, um, that, that Amy uh, does decide to come on the podcast, but anyway, even if she doesn't, uh, you know, um, we, I I think we're probably past the time for sponsoring um, her in the food allergy walk, but we'll uh, we'll we'll provide links to that if people do want to to contribute. Because again, I think it's a very worthy cause. Yeah, I, absolutely. Anytime we can, um, you know, personally engage with someone who's got a story, who's been affected by any of the things that we're interested in, and we stu- we study. I think. I mean, I think it does two things for for me. One is it reminds me that this is. You know, this is real. There are you know, families and individuals that are affected by this, and and people do get really sick and, and they do die. And it's not just um, uh, sort of un, unnamed, faceless um, uh, statistics. And and secondly, I think it's. I mean, I'd I'd love to get um, love to get her on uh, on the podcast because it would give us um, some insight into how, you know, for just personally on how information is communicated to her and where she goes to get stuff and, and, and how she, um, uh, assesses credibility for information and just gives us a whole bunch of insights into how to design better, um, you know, communication, um, messages and, and, uh, and programming. So, I mean, that'd be, it'd be awesome. Uh, and, and I mean, I think it'd be, it's kind of cool for us to extend that to anybody who's, um, who's listening, who, who's real, you know, who's, who's in the field, uh, or who may not be in the field, but, but has experiences, um, with any of the food safety stuff that we talk about. Cause I think it would be, um, it'd be great to, to, to connect with people and, and, um, and sort of put, um, put that name and face on, on the issues. Yeah, absolutely. I wish I, gee, I wish you'd, you'd communicated with her instead of me. You said that much better than I could have. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Don, you're good at this. Um, Hey, so (laughs) let's, this is what I really wanted to talk about today, Don. What's that? (laughs) Urination. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Um, should we, is this uh, before or after bug trivia? Oh no! Yeah, we need to do bug trivia, and it's the new, the new old bug trivia, the um, hundred years of IAFP food safety. So let's go, and I'll do the intro now. Hundred years food safety. That's so it's so great. <laughs> really is. That's like an artisanal um, something something. Um, so. 
so we're, we're, we're retracing the history of IAFP. And uh, this is, a, again, a, a series that was published um, in as part of the 100th anniversary of the International Association for Food Protection uh, on a committee spearheaded by a friend of the podcast, Michelle Daniluk. And we are now still in the pre-1940s part of food safety. And so th- we're, we're now talking about um, the editorial section of the Journal of Milk Technology, which was the journal that eventually became Food Protection Trends and the Journal of Food Protection. And this is the, the initial editorial um, in the Journal of Milk Technology, Volume 1, Issue 1. And this is what is written. And, and this is – so this was written – in 1937, but I think you'll find that the words really still resonate with what it is that we're doing today. So, uh, and I'll, I'll read again from the um, the document, which 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 um, summarizes the text that was published in the uh, in the editorial section of the journal. The application of science to dairying has converted the milkman into a milk industrialist, a dairy into a milk plant. Its operation requires an effective application of the technology of dairying. This technology uses animal husbandry, bacteriology, chemistry, physics, mechanical and electrical engineering, and transportation. The modern milk business is a highly organized industry whose successful operations are predicated on the application of the newest developments of food technology. The man who must inspect such a business and be responsible for its safe operation must be able to think in terms of all the factors that may be involved. And then they go on to talk about the multidisciplinary nature of milk safety. And again, I think still, again, relevant today. Um, The Journal of Milk Technology was to serve that field of milk technology not covered by publications of the purely research type on the one hand, nor trade journal type on the other. It will be valuable to official sanitarians, to the members of the technical quality control and research staffs of commercial organizations, to instructors in educational institutions, to research workers in the experiment stations, and to investigators in all fields of research in milk sanitation and technology. So, I mean... Man, they just they nailed it in 1937, and here it is, all these years later, and that's essentially still what we're doing today. And you just take in that previous sentence, take the word milk out and replace it with food, and and man, that's what it is that we do. We sit there, not the pure research publications, not the trade journal publications. We really sit there between the two and say, well, what what do we need to do to advance the field to help everybody, both the regulators, the academic scientists, the industry practitioners, to try to do a better job when it comes to food safety. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's, it's heartening. And also, um, you know, a little not disappointing. is not the right word, but it, it's heartening to see that, that we're now 60, you know, 75 years later, um, from when this was uh, more than that, uh, when, when this was published and, and we still, I mean, we still have, Issues and we'll always have issues, um, but it's I mean the same. The as you said, it's it's really the exact same approach that that started this. Um, you know the the organization that if it didn't exist, we probably wouldn't have uh, met each other and started this podcast. But it's you know uh, we'll, we'll be we'll be fighting this good fight of food safety with the same parameters, just with better data and, and new pathogens or new issues or new whatever. Um, you know for for another, you know, hundred years, um, it's it is it's kind of cool that um, 
that we're able to to look back in history and see that it's, I mean it's it's the same approach. <laughs> Indeed. So so well enough of that. Let's talk about urination. Yeah. All right. So I have three things for you, Don, on urination. Okay. One's a personal. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say number one. Yeah, I was number number one's a personal story. <laughs> okay. no, number two is an incident, and and number three. I have a question for you. So let's start with the personal story. Sure. So right before at pretty much every one of our podcasts, I have a routine. I go to the restroom. I I don't often, I'm not one who, who needs to go multiple times during the day. Um, I drink a lot more water in the last six months than I used to. And I'm, I, that makes me uh, urinate more, but I, I have a, a beef with the facilities in my office on campus. And it's that I have a urinal in my building that I challenge anyone to urinate in the urinal and not get urine splash on their pants. I challenge all of you to come to my office, <laughs> <laughs> come to the urinal in your office, come to the urinal in my office, in my building and, and not get, not get urine on your pants. And so as I was preparing for the podcast and going through my pregame routine, I, I looked down and lo and behold, I have splashed all over my my pants and it's just embarrassing. I mean, I don't know if you've, we, we've not. This is not a topic we've talked about uh, on the podcast or off the podcast, but it, I think it's something that that is largely a male issue, um, and I, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody about it. But but it it, it it it's it's something that I just need to to get off my chest. That there are just some ill, poorly designed urinal placement, and it's it's like it's too. There's too much. I'm not, and I'm not an engineer, but it's, there's too much concavity, concavity, and mm-hmm. it's at the wrong level. So it's not; it's too low. Um, so, so that that's my my personal story. Um, and I I would like you to come to Raleigh, Don, and, and we'll I'll take you in there. <laughs> no, you're, come to Raleigh and urinate in your office. Yeah. Sure. yeah. <laughs> So that's number one. Uh, so, number so can I can I can yeah. I react to that, or do you want to go on oh, to number two? No, no, no. I want you to react. Okay. So, um, so th- this is an issue, and it seems to me like it's just a simple design problem, right? Like you you need to get um, you need to sort of look at the range of heights of people. You need to design some urinals to minimize splash. You can you could you could you know replicate this in a laboratory. I mean, you know, it, it sounds kind of silly, but there's people that study design, right? And and nothing, you know, nothing says that you shouldn't have a urinal that's well designed either. Um while we're talking about the subject of of bathrooms and, and toilets and, and urinals, a couple of things. So the other thing that I, I've noticed in my home bathroom, um, the angle of the window is such that sometimes it really, you know, provides a, a, like a very nice illumination of the toilet. And when I flush the toilet, I I, I see like spray aerosol coming up from the toilet and, and, you know, and, and I don't always notice it, but when the light is right, I notice it. But then that makes me think about every toilet everywhere. And, and is that a potential, you know, way of cross-contaminating? And we've talked about in the past, we've talked about a norovirus outbreak where they stored 
bags that were then later used to hold ready-to-eat foods. They stored those in a bathroom where people had norovirus, and lo and behold, people that ate the foods out of those bags became contaminated because of this issue of aerosolization. So, um, I, I mean, I guess the good news is with respect to urine, if you're a healthy person, your urine is sterile, but not so much um, the water that's in the toilet necessarily. So it, you know, this, this is a, this is an important issue. And, and, you know, I mean, I think some designers need to get busy on it. Yeah. Um, uh, we, I think we might've talked about it or, or it came up at some other point. Cause there are a few papers on, um, uh, spread of infection from aerosol contamination from flushing a domestic toilet. Some work that came out of the UK, um, look at 2005, um, here. So, so there are some folks that have looked at it, but, but I mean, the, Looking at it, and then you know, it goes back to to the stuff that that we were talking about with dishwashers and jams. Looking at it and generating data, and then making decisions based on it, or you know, that that's the next step um, here. So, continuing on in my urination train, um, I, I'd like to just highlight uh, something that that we picked up for Barf Blog over the weekend uh, about a man in Sweden who urinated on some supermarket produce. Um, and these are in the notes, but I've just added it, so you probably haven't seen it since we started. So let me just read. This is from a UPI story. Uh, a Swedish man who was apparently drunk was arrested for allegedly urinating on fruit in a grocery store, police said. Police said the suspect entered a supermarket in Gothenburg in western Sweden and stumbled into the produce section where he began peeing on a pile of apples and oranges. Store employees said that the fruit was worth 700 kroner, which um, fortunately they translated that into $110 U.S. and had to be thrown away. The local .se said Saturday. So here's the – that's the event. And and my my two stories, this isn't all for – you know, for fun. And this isn't just a potty joke um, like we talk about in my home because of the potty training that's going on. But – this has a, a, a real question, a real risk question. You already mentioned about sort of a healthy person's urine being s- sterile, and I'm not going to make any, um, I'm not going to say anything about the quality of this drunk man's, you know, the fruits of this drunk man's labors. Um, <laughs> well, nor 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 should you, because you really have no information. <laughs> that's right. I have no information, but I mean, so selling. Well, but th- you know, that said, I mean, if you had said to me, hey. This is some produce that a person with sterile urine peed on. Um, you'll pay full price for that. I would say hell no. So of course not. No, that nobody should have to eat food that has been urinated on. It should. I'll, we do have some colleagues in um, agriculture economics that could do some sort of willingness to pay study on this. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm going to give you a hundred dollars of 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 fake money. How much are you willing to pay for something that someone is pissed on? Um, so anyway, um, the question that I have though for you is is this: we we talk about um, hand washing after going to the restroom, and you, this preamble, I'm sure you can guess at what I'm going to ask, but we talk about um, that that it's very important, regardless of. You know, just you wash your hands after you go to the restroom, and this is a risk factor. But what do we know about going to the you know hand transfer from post urination, and whether that? I mean, my my assumption is without without any sort of data that I know about that that's a, a less risky bathroom event than 
than a than a bowel movement uh, from a hand washing standpoint. And this sounds so esoteric that we're getting into this discussion, mm. but I think but I think it matters from a getting the science right and being able to convince people that it's important to wash their their hands when they go to the restroom at the right time. Because I think people sort of turn off on, well, yeah, but I just went and peed. Um, Is that so much of an issue versus, you know, number two? And so, so what do you, I mean, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? How do we, (laughs) what, what, as the, as the risk modeler expert here, what does it say? What do you know about it? Well, that's it. It's a, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, a couple of different things here. So one, I have a PhD student who is getting ready to defend her PhD thesis this week. And the topic of her dissertation is norovirus modeling norovirus transfer in food service situations. Um, and one of the factors, so she built basically a, um, um, of a computer model uh, and and um, uh, agent based computer model. So what I mean by agent based is it's not <clears throat> not just a spreadsheet. It's like a little virtual restaurant, admittedly a, a simple one, where uh, people come into the restaurant. Um, they they have a job to do. Either they're cutting lettuce, they're cutting tomatoes, they're mixing lettuce and tomatoes, um, or they are working uh, as counter staff. And and she looked at various scenarios where. You know, the the lettuce comes in contaminated, a tomato comes in contaminated, a worker comes in contaminated. And one of the variables that she looked at was cross-contamination through using the bathroom. So so we assume, like at the start of the simulation, nothing so complicated as the person has to go to the bathroom and they have norovirus and so they, they have diarrhea and they get it on their hands. No, we just had a very, very simple scenario where... A person who works at a restaurant comes in with a certain load of norovirus on their hands at the beginning of the day. Where does it go? And one of the places it goes is to the taps in the bathroom. And what that means is that somebody else then who comes into the bathroom can touch the tap and now carries norovirus with them throughout their day and then spreads it again in, in the place in the, in the restaurant where they're doing their job. And what she showed was that that can be a significant, that, that, that bathroom tap can be a significant source of contamination. Now, that's not really answering your question. So let's come back and, and let me not answer your question a different way. <laughs> um, so <Okay. laughs> looking, at, looking at it in terms of risk, clearly a bowel movement is a higher risk than and urination. And as, as Pete Snyder affectionately, or as, as I affectionately refer to Pete, uh, calling events, these toilet paper slip events, right? So you're, you're, you've just crapped in the toilet and you're wiping your butt and, and you miss, right? You, you slip and now you've got contamination. You've got fecal matter on your fingers. Well, that's the time, that's the time when it's really important to, to wash your hands. Now, that said, there are still are probably other things that are happening in, in the bathroom that could result in contamination. You know, it gets, it gets really complicated really quickly. Um, from the point of view of risk management, I would say it's of critical importance. You know, I may, if we may, and maybe if we maybe I can answer your question if I talk about it from a from a HACCP standpoint. So from from a hazard analysis and critical control point standpoint, if you are having a bowel movement, it is a critical control point that after that bowel movement you wash your hands. Um, if after urination 
you wash your hands, I would say that's kind of like a good sanitary practice or a good hygienic practice or good manufacturing practice to use the food processing parlance. So it's a good thing to do and you, you should do it, but it's not critical in managing risk. So I guess that's, that's kind of my, my take on that scenario. Oh, brilliant. That, <laughs> I, I hadn't thought of it in that, that approach. And um, but I think you you captured it at least uh, you know in, in my estimation of these two events have different levels of risk. Um, you know, like you said, one is clearly messier, has is more complicated, where urination is is maybe not as um, likely to to introduce that contamination on the hands in the first place, and and it would be a good practice. Yeah, I. Um, uh, the reason why I ask this is because I think this comes up a lot in training that that we do or that I do, and and someone, uh, one of my sort of colleagues uh, and co-presenters, tried to answer this question by saying, "Well, look, it all goes back into your underwear, <laughs> and stuff can sm- swim around and move around in there, and it can come from one location up to the front." And I, I just didn't, I mean, I, I just don't know if that's, it may be, but I just don't know if that's the case. And I don't think it's, if it is, that it's not clearly not as risky. As the other. <laughs> All I have to say, if, if stuff is swimming around in your underwear, yeah. <laughs> you have a bigger problem than, than food safety, right? <laughs> like your underwear are wet. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, the, this is this is a tough this is a tough issue. But if if we're really truly going to take a risk based approach to it, yep. we need to segregate that risk. And I think in some cases we don't we don't know. Um, and we lose people like that. That's that's the thing is if if we if we put it all into one bucket of the restroom. And someone says, but like uh, intuitively says, look, I know I get this one. I get the, I get the one, uh, the bowel movement one, but this, this, this other one with urination, give me the data behind it or tell me why that one's as important. And we just don't, I mean, I don't think it exists and I know I'm not really interested in doing that work. Right. Uh, right. But- well, and, and, and on top of that, the, the, the third issue, which is really the important one is it's not. Do you wipe your hands or do you wash your hands after a bowel movement? It's not do you wash your hands after you urinate. It's do you have a policy in place so that workers that are sick with diarrhea are not even in the restaurant in the first place? Because the, that that is really what, in my mind, that is really what it comes down to. Because you just don't want those people in the restaurant while they're infectious and while they're shedding the organism, especially while they're shedding the organism through vomit or through diarrhea. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. You, because if we're, if we're focusing on hand washing as the barrier, it's not going to be as effective as keeping them out of the system in the first place. Exactly right. Um, so, okay, let's, this isn't something that, that I had, you know, thrown in the notes or planned on, but let's, let's take that, let's take this discussion a little farther. And we know that, that people, um, from from what some of the work that uh, this uh, folks at Emory have shown and some of the CDC recommendations that people can shed um, the virus particle for a, a long you know a long time you know definitely 
uh, you know, high amounts in three days, um, uh, you know, on average after recovering from symptoms and, and as long as two weeks uh, in, in certain cases. And so what do we have for like a practical answers to someone who's in the food industry or, or that worker of, you know, like this is, this is where, where we've got these gradients, I guess. It, let me, let me attempt to answer my question um, first and then toss it over to you. But I think it's like, okay, within those three days, if you've got diarrhea, um, you're not coming back in here in those high risk shedding times, even if you feel better. And then after that time, you need to be on special high double probation alert on hand washing. Because you still may be shedding it, but but you're not shedding it in the same you know in the same volume, or or do we? I mean, realistically, practically, no one's going to sit out for three weeks or five weeks or or whatever we can show is is the average shedding time, or if there are super shedders or whatever. But what I mean, how do how do we practically give give that? Um, how do we practically manage this issue of okay, so you're feeling better? When can I come back to work? Well, that's a that's a good question, and, and Craig Hedberg, a couple of years ago now, I think shared some data with me, and I wish I had been more scrupulous about key, about like looking at it and, and remembering where it came from or writing it down or something. But basically, yeah, it's an established fact that let's let's just take norovirus for example, that people shed norovirus long after their symptoms resolve. But the data that that Craig had showed to me was something to the effect that yes, it's true that somebody might be shedding the virus two weeks after, but really the risk of transmission drops dramatically once symptoms resolve, right? So what that means is that somebody that has a solid bowel movement and this intuitively this makes sense right if you have a liquid bowel movement you got stuff flying everywhere right but if you have swimming. a so- if, swimming in your underwear yeah, swimming in your underwear exactly um but if you have a solid bowel movement yes the that bowel that 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 turd may be loaded with norovirus but for the most part the risk is contained um and and yes it's not that it's zero risk but again i think we've left the we've long left the the world of of living in in zero risk world right that there is some risk there but yeah and like you said double special probation for workers that are sick with norovirus that where the symptoms are resolved but that maybe you let them in the restaurant but they're not in food contact or they're not in in ready to eat food contact or they're you know double gloving or they're i don't know something you know something extra going on to try to manage that risk because yes they are infectious but the risk is again and we don't know is the risk an order of magnitude less is it two three orders of magnitude less we just don't know but definitely the risk is less and i would venture to say significantly less and again the data that i'm remembering in my mind that craig showed me shows shows yes that's definitely the case and maybe this is um so it's it's the individual um that that has to be better at hand washing in those you know downtime where they're still shedding but um, but not showing symptoms. But also the the management's got to be more vigilant around um, cleaning uh, the restroom. You know that the, because they know that there is a possibility that there's going to be um, that virus is introduced. And and I, I mean I think that it, yeah intuitively as you said there's not so much explosion in those um, in those bowel movements like you would have when when symptoms are high. So so we started with urine. And we move really nicely into feces. Um, what 
what bodily function would you like to go to next, Doc? I'm, I'm, I'm finished, Ben. This is a this is a PG rated podcast. I'm done. Oh, it's true. It's true. We could talk about snot, I guess. I, I should I should mention that uh, we've been sort of debating some of these issues. So I I think I've mentioned before on the podcast. I'm sitting on the Conference for Food Protection um, uh, committee that's looking at hand washing, and we're trying to get to some discussion about segmentation of risk, but. It's it's when it comes to hand washing, it's really hard because the 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 positions are on on the part of the regulatory agencies are so entrenched. And again, there is still out there in the world this zero risk mentality that that things are risky and that risk needs to be managed and that there are lots of bright lines in the sand and and one of those perfect risk mitigation measures is a hand wash and so there's all these circumstances where a hand wash is required in the code and right now they're pretty much all equal um in the code but um, they're not well, but they're not equal in the real world but there's a real resistance to move and to show any flexibility at all in the code because my gosh then we'll just have anarchy ben you know people will just be n- not washing their hands and using hand sanitizer everywhere and it's just you know and it's just i just i just kind of shake my head and roll my eyes and you know um stay on mute on the phone call because you know, I mean, I, I, I <laughs> just exasperating. Well, how did, so, I mean, you've been around in the retail world for, for a while. I'm not saying that you're old. I'm just saying that you're <laughs> experienced. How, how did, how did, how was it that we ever moved from flaw, fall, eh, walls, floors, and ceilings to, to risk factors or contributing risk events or whatever CDC calls it that's not risk factors. I mean, how did that, or FDA, I mean, how, how did that happen? Because, and was it the same type of in, in, entrenched problem that, well, we can't, we're looking for things now that we can't see readily or that we can't in, inspect to? Was that easy or, I mean, I get, I get the sense it wasn't easy, but it happened. That's a good question, and that that actually, I mean, I was a part of some of that because I was on the IFT committee that revisited the definition of potentially hazardous foods, and we we moved off of the bright line of pH four point six and water activity zero point eight five, and we showed that it was a little bit more nuanced and complicated than that. But in terms of how did the Conference for Food Protection move the FDA model food code to something? more nuanced than move it away from floors, walls, and ceilings. I don't know, except that we reached a certain number of folks. It's kind of like the, you know, the, the, um, Malcolm Gladwell tipping point book. At some point, the world, the world reaches a tipping point and there's more people that believe something than don't believe it. And then you kind of cascade over that, um, over that point, And then, and then the, the, the new world is different. And so at some point we reached, enough informed people that had a decision that said, you know, it's like, how did we, how did we move from GMPs to HACCP, right? Well, some smart people kind of blazed a trail and then everybody else pretty soon said, Hey, that looks like the right way to go. And then pretty soon that was the, that was the dogma for, for better or worse. And then, and then again, then, then you wait until the next disruption and the next revolution to come along and figure out what the, what the next thing is. So I think we're, we're, kind of midway through all of that transition. And we, again, people love to talk about how things are risk-based, but at the same time, people don't want to give up what's familiar and what's comfortable. Uh, That should be our show title, except it's too long. It's way too long. 
but it's true. I mean, that that's that's it. Is you've got to show not just a little bit of data, but data and data and data, and then have the right people continuously talk about it. I assume that that's exactly what happened with Hassab. Was you just had the right the right players that implemented it, and and they like and I, I mean the right players being the right individuals and the right organizations and companies. So it's, yeah, this, this is the same, same kind of thing on that segmentation of risk. I I mean, I think it's the risk factors are there and it, and people can all agree to, uh, you know, to some extent of what's in there. Now let's, let's jump in and, and get into the nuance a little more. It makes people a little more uncomfortable. So, yeah, but you know, and, and so I guess the trick is to keep, keep pressing for things that are science-based, keep pressing for things that are risk-based and be patient, be very, very patient because, you know, I mean, I thought we had kind of resolved some of these things at the conference for food protection a number of years ago, but if there is some level of discomfort, then what will happen is the agency will lobby behind the scenes. They'll get states to extract the issues and then um, stuff won't move forward. But, you know, you just you got to treat it as you got to play the long game, right? Because if you're if you're in it for for short term uh, wins, you're just going to be disappointed. So you have to take a take a long view and, you know, and then and then not get too worried when when right and science and and risk based thinking don't win the day Um, and then come back the next the next time and, and try it again. Or, or go back and get, get more data and try it again. You know, I mean, the, the, there's, the, you know, we're little by little, we're, we're, we're knocking, you know, knocking bricks in the wall or, or putting bricks in the wall, building, you know, paper, one paper at a time, one study at a time, you know, one, you know, changing one person's mind at a time. Playing the long games like, uh, like Avon Barksdale. In, in in the sense that uh, it was his, 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 he was always planning from the start on on how to how to be the uh, be there at the end. <laughs> yeah, um, and you know, no spoilers, but I'm pretty sure it didn't work out okay for him. It did not, but that's what that was the goal. Right, right. Um, <laughs> um, I just had to, we haven't had a wire reference in in like seven episodes, Don. I had to throw something in. There. Oh, I know. I'm, I have. I've stopped uh, watching it while while traveling. I just I I miss it though. I need to get back into it. I, I think about it all the time. Anytime somebody <laughs> talks about a bureaucracy or how messed up something is, I just I just think about the wire. In oh. fact, I was listening to the the. Uh, recent, most recent episode of Roderick on the Line. I'm about halfway halfway through listening to it, and and John is talking about his forays into local politics, and all. I'm just thinking about it's it's the wire, you know. It's Carcetti. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's Carcetti. Uh, awesome. Um, so uh, I got a couple other things that, that I wanted to, to chat about with you, and policy changes uh, is actually a nice, nice little segue into into this. The last week, there was a, or a couple of weeks ago, there's an outbreak in in Canada, E. coli 157H7 in an unpasteurized uh, uh, milk product, an unpasteurized cheese that had been aged for 60 days, and uh, 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 outbreak was uh, 12 illnesses in three provinces and a death. And our our good friend Kevin Allen had some really uh, he was interviewed by CBC and had some really cool or not cool, but some choice words that I think were um, had been brought up 
uh, here in the U.S. Uh, about 18 months ago uh, around another raw milk uh, cheese uh, outbreak and illness. And, and Carl Custer has mentioned this a, a couple of times. And so anyway, um, I'll just read the, the quote. Uh, from Kevin, he says this recall highlights the problems associated with consuming raw milk and its products. Obviously, we have a failure here, says Alan. Alan says currently Canadian law requires raw milk cheese to be aged for 60 days in order to eliminate pathogens and make it safe. But E. coli 157H7 can survive well past that time, and and aging is not a guarantee of safety. Uh, quote, the problem is we have a modern-day food chain with modern-day pathogens that seem tolerant to these conditions that we use to render it safe. I think it's maybe time to look at our policy and maybe amend it. So so we we've, we touched on this a while ago, I think way, way back in, in an earlier episode. But this is um, not, I mean, by no means the first uh, raw milk cheese outbreak from an aged product. Uh, the uh, the the product in, in question is a gouda product, not a not a gouda product, but a gouda product. Oh, it's not it's not even a very good joke. Um, and and you know had had followed um, the reg the the produ- the producer of the dairy had followed the regulatory advice, but but still there's obviously a risk with with these products. So what do we do? And I know FDA has been looking at this. What uh, what's you know. What do you, what do you think? Have you have you done any of this modeling work on this? I, I I have not. It's a good it's a good question, and I guess I think I would I would disagree a little bit um, with Kevin on this. Um, the, the issue, and and the, again, there's a well known food microbiologist who gave a presentation on this a number of years ago. Who basically talked about, well, you know, here's the research on this organism or this cheese, and it shows that it survives for this long, you know, and greater than 60 days, less than 60 days. And to me, <clears throat> it's the wrong model, right? So it's not, uh, and I mean, you know, could be mental model, could be mathematical model. The issue is not how long will a pathogen survive in cheese, the issue is what is the rate of reduction. In the product over time, because it's not—it's not that it survives this long. It's that it starts at this level, it declines at this rate with a certain degree of uncertainty, and then it goes below the detection limit or below the or—you know—the uh, below one organism per serving, or it's a probability of a certain number of organisms per serving below a certain level, and that's what we need to use to manage risk. So the question I would ask is. What do we know about survival of 0157H7 in Gouda and in in particular in the Gouda that has this particular pH and uh, salt content, et cetera? And then what do we know about the dose of the pathogen at the beginning uh, when the milk was made or, or how it changes during the, the, the manufacturing process of, or the, the fermentation process of the milk? And I'm, again, I'm sort of a libertarian when it comes to these food safety risks. If people want to drink raw milk, that's their business. If they want to eat raw milk cheese, that's their business. We should work with the industry that wants to make these products to try to find a way to make them as safe as possible. Maybe part of that is uh, labeling. Um, Certainly part of that is doing the science so that we know how the risk changes over time. Um, but I, I think that if we take, a, again, not to hammer on this this point, if we take a risk-based approach where we understand the starting concentrations, we understand the risk reductions over time, 
and we understand the variability in those factors, we should be able to, at the end of the day, come to some conclusion about, well, okay, if we may, if we allow this product to be made, we can expect a certain, this certain number of cases at, at, at a certain time. I totally agree with you on that the model of some magical day, 60 days, 80 days, 120, whatever it is, gives the this false potentially this false sense of security to both the producer and the consumer of the cheese and if we can get engage in a better discussion on well it will get safer as we go towards these dates but there were still there will all there will be a risk and are you okay with that do you understand that there will still be a risk that's where where some of the the failure is and that is changing the model i mean that that's changing the the regulatory model for for cheese and dairy and this i mean we we talked a lot about history today but this is one of those things where you know um dairy milk raw milk cheese all this stuff has this very emotional response in public health and and not the same way – you don't see that same emotional response with raw oysters, you know, like where, where it's a very – where it's a similar situation where there will be risk with it. And and the I, – yeah, I, I think that the that changing that that model to do a better job presenting the risk so people can make better decisions, whether that be the dairy and the cheesemaker who says, you know what, I'm not, I'm not willing to take on that risk uh, for my customers or to the, to the patrons or the, uh, the consumer saying, well, that's, that's too much of a risk for me to, um, to worry about or not, or I'm, I'm willing, you know, that's fine. The, the benefit of this really good um, Gouda is, is, uh, is worth it. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's the thing is that there is not, a magic day that makes it safe. It's 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 the management of the risk of the pathogen in the beginning. It's the characteristics of the cheese. It is the the day is part of that, but it is only one part of a multiple factor decision making process. And and yeah, I mean a label that says that you know this this cheese has been aged for 60 days to reduce risk, but it may still harmful har, har, harbor you know harmful pathogens or it may contain harmful pathogens, um, you know, make an educated choice and, and, you know, don't, don't consume this product if you're a young child or don't give it to your kids or, or, or if you're immunocompromised, you know, so some, something to that effect, mm-hmm. but, but that, that's a lot of words to fit on one tiny little label. Well, it's a good thing that they're not trying to put those words into a podcast title. <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> exactly. We, <laughs> um, it, well, but I mean, you bring up you bring up a point. I mean, labeling is is one way to do this. There are other methods to to engage people in this community um, who want to eat this cheese, but may or may not understand the risk associated with it. And I think that the uh, you know, we talked even the last podcast a little bit about raw milk, and there's a, a segment of the population that that regardless of of what risk they're presented. Um, they will choose the the milk or the cheese, and that's that's okay. What we're what we're trying, I mean, I, I think where the discussion needs to go is how how about the people that haven't made up their mind that that maybe just want to eat really good cheese, but they don't want to be exposed to a pathogen to get really good cheese. Um, how do we how do we engage that group with uh, with this information and give them all the tools that they can make a decision with? What there, I mean, there was one other little nuanced part of this. Uh, this outbreak 
and it comes back to uh, another common theme of the podcast, or at least one that I have, and I know one that Doug has on um, on, Dar- on Barf Blog, and it's this idea of when to go public with information and why to make decisions. And so, let me just read you from the from the CBC article as well that the chief medical officer for Interior Interior Health in British Columbia said that they knew or there was a sense uh, on uh, a week ago Friday that Gort's Gouda Cheese Farm and Salmon Arm was the source of this outbreak, but it took until Tuesday to confirm the outbreak or to have enough data to go public with it. And and so, you know, they had a little bit of information. They didn't go public with it. But the reason why they didn't go public with it, which came out in this, this article, got well, I kind of skewered Dr. Parker for it, and it got a little bit of traction um, throughout Canada on it. And he said that media attention can destroy a business, and authorities wanted to be certain. And I get, you know, uh, this is one of those things that we don't have a hard, fast policy, and there's always going to be um, issues on going early and being wrong or going too late and people getting exposed to it. And and I'll, I'm going to sort of say this again. Because um, I've said this a, a few times on the podcast, the issue—it's—it's it's like the magic day of you know the magic sixty days. There's no magic answer here, but what what really helps is them pulling back the curtain, the epidemiologists and the folks that are involved with communicating this to the public, saying, "Hey, look, there's a bunch of people that are getting sick from E. coli." One, you know, one of the possibilities here is this farm. This is what we're looking at. We're not sure whether it's them or not. And and here's why we have a lot of uncertainty. And explain the messiness of the case control study and explain the messiness of the data that they currently have. And we don't, we're not privy to all that. But being able to tell that story and, and then, you know, a, Having that, having people potentially avoid that product for four days or or choose not to eat it. I mean, there, the thing is that there is information that was out there that the health officials had that they didn't share with people that someone could have continued to be exposed to this pathogen because they were waiting to get you know ultimate confirmation, whatever that whatever that means. And I I just I, I wish that it was a better, more frank discussion of these um, these investigations. Um, because people could avoid that product. Well, and and that's, I think, the key determinant, right, is is there something that you could do today that would potentially put informed consumers, it might, it might unfairly damage a company, but that would make a net public health benefit by making the announcement? Or is this an example of an outbreak where the product is, is gone and consumed and uh, no, no one else is really at risk, right? So, but if that's the case, yeah, then you, you, ought, to, um, you, you ought to do something about it if you can. Yeah, and I'm making some assumptions. I think you bring up a really good point here. Is I'm making an assumption that they had enough information to know that it was either one certain batch or not, or or whatever. Um, I, I assume that that at the point they were just trying to connect things to a specific product distributor, you know, or, or producer, um, that that they may not have known if, if there was still product on the market. And I mean, there was a, um, a recall associated with it afterwards. So, so it 
you know, there may, there likely has been, but it's, it's a good, you've got a good point here because something like uh, fresh tomatoes or, um, you know, something that's not shelf stable, a produce item that, that takes a while to figure out what the source is. If there's no public health benefit, net public health benefit, then, then yeah, it's, it's difficult to go public with it. But for something like this where, you know, I've, I've probably got some, well, I don't have any, um, unpasteurized gouda in my fridge, but I definitely have some cheese that's been sticking around there, uh, for a while. It, it, it's, it's something that's not going to, um, have the same removal from the market. Right? right. It's, it's not like fresh produce where if you don't eat it in a couple of days, it's, it's gone. It's compost. Exactly right. Yeah. So it's, that's been an interesting one. Um, yeah. What, did you have, uh, you put some stuff in here. Is there anything you want to talk about? Well, we've been going for about an hour and almost 20 minutes. Um, I guess the, the one thing that I do want to talk about is this article from Food Safety News uh, that's at the top of the list there, uh, the article entitled Confusing Food Date Labels yes. Lead to Unnecessary Food Waste. Um, and on the one hand, uh, well, on the one hand, I agree with the first three words or first four words food date labeling is confusing. <laughs> um, I agree with that. Um, and could the industry do better? Yes. I'm not so sure that it could, it leads to unnecessary food waste. Um, and the other thing too, uh, is that the, the, so this was picked up by food safety news, but it's based on an NRDC report. And the NRDC stands for Natural Resources Defense Council, who's a group of people that I have no great love for. I started my career um, um, with um, uh, an NRDC event. They, the NRDC are the people that are behind uh, the Alar in Apples uh, fiasco on 60 Minutes and the report that they did showing that this dangerous chemical Alar was in apples and that kids were dying um, you know, of cancer because of it, which was just a complete and utter BS as we, as we learned later. So anytime NRDC says something, I, you know, I know they have an agenda and I'm a little bit, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical. Um, and you and I have talked about my colleague, Deb Keenan, who works with low income folks or people that are, that are on the margins who maybe have risky food safety practices because they're worried about getting enough to eat. And, and those people, you know, are, are engaging in risky practices that might be, you know, around the issue of buying expired foods because they're cheaper, et cetera. But, you know, I mean, if a manufacturer puts a date on a product that says best before this date, um, they're putting that there for a reason because they believe that the product will have the best quality. They will have a nutritional label that's accurate, et cetera, et cetera, by that date. And as I mean, again, we live in a culture of affluence and, you know, you know, we, we don't, we, most of us aren't starving and most of us, I think, don't want to eat food that is of poor quality because it's past its expiration date. So I, I don't know. I'm a little bit. I'm, of, I'm of confused as to how to feel about this article. On the one hand, I agree that food date labeling is confusing. Um, there may be some safety issues with respect to 
to, to, to food dates. Um, Listeria is a, is the kind of the main example, Listeria and deli meats. These deli meats are labeled for very long shelf life and, and, and that, and the organism can grow slowly over a long period of time in, in such products. And so there may be some food safety issues there. If you eat those products when they're past their, um, sell by date or, or, or not their sell by date, but their best before date. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that's, I'm kind of all over the map on this one, Ben, can you help me? Uh, a little bit. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm entering less on all over the map on it. So, um, I don't know if you, if you had a chance to go into the NRDC report, but they, they had some recommendations and some of them, I don't, I don't know. Okay. So the first one they make is make sell dot sell by dates invisible to the consumer. This idea that the sell-by date generates confusion, offers consumer no useful guidance. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, in, I'm for two reasons. I'm not a big fan of that. One is I like more information than than less information, uh, as always. And secondly, it, it it still tells me as a consumer what. Well, sorry, not as a consumer, as a uh, as a retailer when I need to take something off the shelf and, and it seems like it may end up leading to poorer quality stuff that, that, that ends up, um, in those display cases or, or, you know, wherever. So I don't know about that one. Um, there are a couple of, of nice, uh, things that they, that they talk about sort of wish lists on establishing a reliable, coherent and uniform consumer facing dating system. Um, they talk about in, in, uh, including a freeze by date, um, and sort of standardizing the language that's used for quality and safety based labels. They do make an interesting one, um, that I wanted to get your, um, your, your take on it. They actually su- suggest to remove or replace quality-based dates on non-perishable shelf-stable products. So, um, you know, the, this, it, it, so the, they say removing best before our other quality dates from shelf-stable non-perishable foods for which safety is not a concern would reduce waste of these products and increase the weight given to labels placed on products that do have safety concerns. Some type of date that may still be useful, such as an indication of shelf life after opening, so best within X days of opening, or the date on which the product was packed, maximum quality X months, years after the pack date. And what I guess I wanted to get your your take on this was, what's the difference between a quality-based date, you know, used by X date versus it was packed on this date? Like, isn't it, isn't it the same thing? Um I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, well, any 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 system that requires the consumer to do math is not a good one, right? So, <laughs> so I mean, a packed on date is not helpful to the consumer if they don't know how to deal with it, and even if you tell them this is best before um, 365 days after the pack date. No, that's insane. Just have a best, best if best right. before date, right? Um, but I I disagree with their proposition to have sell by dates be invisible to the consumer because that is, I mean, so if, if you're going to get rid of that, then you need to replace it with something that can be used at the retail level because the retail folks need to be part of this. Right. Um, so they, they need to know when to pull that product and, and to, and so they can help to manage their, their stocks. Um, I think that the second suggestion, establish a reliable, coherent, uniform consumer facing dating system is, is a great idea. Um, you know, um, so, I mean, there's a lot, I mean, this is, it's a mixed bag. 
there's a lot to like in this report and there's a lot that, that I think is just, is not right. Yeah. It, it, what's kind of nice in, in here as I go on a little bit is they do have, they've, they've collected a little bit of information um, on uh, this. They've entitled it mistaken belief that past eight foods are unsafe to consume um, from a couple of NIFC uh, projects uh, that happened in the early 2000s. Um, so, so they do at least mention, okay, here's, here's safety. They, as you said before, they talk a little bit about, uh, Listeria monocytogenes and refrigerated foods. And, and that's not in, um, you know, they kind of delineate that that's not exactly what they're talking about. But, um, I guess what, yeah, I don't know. I'm all over the place on it too. I do. What I really like, actually, Don, in this whole thing, is they went state by state and broke down the regulating date labeling states, like on certain products. And it's it's kind of nice of this mishmash of some states require um, date labeling on perishable foods, some on potentially hazardous foods, some on milk and dairy. You know, ba- basically, DC requires a label on every type of product. Um, but no other state or um, or locale has that, and um, it's kind of it was kind of cool. Yeah, and you know we see this sometimes in New Jersey because our milks have an expiration date, but then there's a different expiration date in New York City. So so our milks will have two dates. It'll say this date unless in New York City this date, and it's like okay, so the bacteria the bacteria care? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, well, but they, just, go it, over, yeah, they go exactly. over that bridge. Exactly. So. They're tougher in New Jersey, in, in uh, New Jersey, maybe. I, but yeah, but I mean, it, anytime somebody can point out a confusing regulatory mishmash of things, you know that that they get, that gets props to me is because that's that just that just shows it's a confusing mess, right? So, so good to, good for them for doing that at least. Yeah. Well, cool. I know you have a hard out in about twenty five minutes or twenty minutes, so we should maybe is this a show? We, I think uh, I think this is a show. All right. Well. Um, as always, great to, to catch up and chat with you. Uh, we'll do this again in a couple of weeks. Um, going down to the bottom of our notes file, wanted to remind our uh, listeners, uh, however you might be listening to us, if it's uh, through the Android store or through the iTunes or, or um, <laughs> on directly on the website, uh, foodsafetytalk.com. Um, please uh, you know, feel free to, to connect with Donner or I or both of us, uh, either through comments um, uh, and reviews on the iTunes store or uh, comments on foodsafetytalk.com or just shoot us an email. And uh, we'll do this again. This, this podcast, uh, we're, we're fairly selfish. We would do this even if people weren't listening to us. Uh, but uh, the more people that listen um, and you know, help shape the show, uh, then that's, that's great. So provide feedback. Indeed. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Don. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye.
Okay. All right. That was good. It's good. So we are out. So um, I don't think my call recorder recorded you. Oh, that's interesting. So I, I only see the input going in, and when you talk, I don't see anything. So I'll see once we stop. But you might, I might. Um, oh well, you're you're editing the file for this one. Anyway. I'm I'm doing audio for this one, right? Yeah. So that's good. Um, hey, so I tried to go in and look at Andreas's notes and Markdown, and I don't know how to open it. <laughs> what do you use? That's a good question. Um, I saw it and had a similar issue, but I think it should just be uh, it should just be a text file. So yeah, so he has <laughs> something called .org. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, but they're the same size. Um, and there's yeah. So I tried to yeah. So if um, yeah. So if you if you open if you open it, you can open it basically in any kind of text editor. Okay. It should tried- open just fine. Did you get it to open? Because I tried yeah. to open it with the um, folding text earlier today. Oh, does it not open with folding text? Open for me. Huh. Oh. Yeah, no, it says uh, the text encoding of these con- contents could not be determined. Oh, that's weird. Um, yeah, let me uh, let me open with um, TextMate. Yeah, so, huh. All right, so let me file, save as... Um, all right, so I'm so, saving as a text file in the Dropbox right now. Um, yeah, but it's just a simple text file, so, um, but I just saved it as a .txt, so. And that worked. Okay. okay. Perfect. Um, cool. Uh, uh, oh, but, yeah. but, but that, it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't matter because for FST48, uh, you're doing audio? That's right. I don't need to look at it. I just want to just look. Wanted to yeah. look at it. Yeah. I was for next time because I'll end up because um, I'll have that next time. So I just right. want to know. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I th- yeah. And you, all, all you have to do is just tell him. Tell him, or you can, actually you can you can just rename the MD as as TXT, and it should it should open in folding text then. Cool. I will do that. Um, so I should have forty nine. No, forty eight done. Uh, the audio probably today. Okay. Sometime this afternoon. So we should be ready to go whenever you get a chance. Um, and yeah. What else did I have for you for after dark? That was it. Good. Uh, and we, and we have, uh, I have in my notes that we, we have to talk about um, this other thing, which is maybe the after dark, after, after, after dark. That's after, after dark. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Oh, no, but I do have something. Okay. So on your schedule. Oh, we need to schedule the next podcast. Well, do you have to, yeah, we have to do that. But I have another. We have to schedule the the next to the next podcast maybe. Okay. So so Bobby mm. wants me to figure out how to, how to actually record the podcast. In Dubai. While I'm in Dubai. Cool. Yeah. It's cool, except I think it might be like a timing nightmare. Mm-hmm. Because I'll be, oh, gosh, now we have to figure this out. Perfect. Yeah, let's hold that for now. And I'll get Bobby to figure out the technology we need. Okay, so he's going to, so it'll still be you and me, but but you're going to record it while you're there. Is that right? That's, I think that's what he's asking for. Okay. 
So uh, let me now that we've got this date, let me go back and forth with him and figure out exactly what he wants. Okay. Um. Okay. I don't know if he wants to like maybe. Because we, we could always record some of the segment, like do uh, 20 minutes and talk to him and whoever else is there. Like you Skype in for it and mm-hmm. then do it like an interview. And then we do our normal one and we splice those things together or something like that. Yeah, there's lots of different ways we can we can do it. So, yeah. I You know, another way we could do it is I could take a cardboard cutout of you and have someone... Um, pretend that you're there, you and uh, make a Don Schaffner voice. That's good. Or we could do a soundboard of me giving various answers to different things. Like <laughs> that depends. It's complicated. It's called, I um, would do a risk assessment. Yeah. Risk-based uh, regulations are good. And then you could just ask questions that those were all answers to <laughs> zero, zero. There's no, no, no such, such thing, thing as, as zero risk. Uh, the uh, uh, there's no such thing as, infectious dose uh, there you go yeah this would be good we actually probably should get a soundboard of each other um cool we haven't done a nighttime episode in a while it's true and sunday nights are are good uh episode, that's episode 50 Is that 50 oh we have to have cake <laughs> well i'm gonna get some cake hey, you know what i'm gonna play some cake there you go episode 50 so nine o'clock is what works for you, right? Yeah, nine o'clock. And and if I get them to sleep any earlier, then I will uh, let you know. Done. Cool. Okay. Perfect. So you've you've got audio for forty nine, and I've got show notes. Yep. Cool. 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 Why am I getting? Don, I'm getting email from like one o'clock today. Mm. Why is that happening? Sometimes the server has a problem and it needs to uh, not not get any email until it gets its problems fixed. At least that happens with our server sometimes. Damn it! Oh well, um, I think you're right. Uh, email okay. is not for instantaneous communication, Ben. That's that's what texting's for. That's what texting is for. That's right. Okay, so I think that's all we need to like sort out. But now we could do after after dark. Okay, so we I'm gonna say good- yeah. <laughs> say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. All right.